Go. <laughs> What is snap judgment? It's that left, that right, jump. Or don't. Storytelling with the beat. Get real close. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment, the podcast. All right. When I was in high school, we had to do this little science experiment. You're supposed to find out your mother and father's blood type and then predict your own. And yeah, this is fraught with peril, but that's just what we did with our little lab kits. And sure enough, my buddy comes back with his information and the teacher says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, this is impossible. Based on your blood type, these can't be your parents. Ooh, that's right. Some science experiment. People were tripping. But my buddy, he didn't seem concerned. I was like, man, ain't you mad or sad or something? He's like, no. No, man. I got me something called the behind test. What's that? He said, if somebody wiped my behind, must be they my parents. Well, today, on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, we proudly present one of our own. Stories about the different ways people go about creating that special alchemy called family. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and let's get this show started with some very dear friends of mine. Long-time couple, Kevin and Brian Fisher-Paulson decided that if they wanted kids, it was time to get started. They weighed their options and decided to work with the local foster adoption system. After interviews, courses, and reams of paperwork, their phone rang. Sometimes, life changes come in threes. I was at work at noon on April 1st. And Brian said, are you in your office? And I said, yes. And he said, sit down. And I sat down and he said, we just got a phone call from the agency. They want us to take in newborn triplets, one of whom has a punctured intestine and therefore has a colostomy bag. And we have to have an answer in three hours. What? Snap judgment. Were you afraid and running away? Are you kidding? Wouldn't you be? <laughs> 20 days old, ready to go from the hospital. They are medically fragile. And there are three of them. Go. Are we ready for this? No. But who is? Let's do it. We made the phone call at 3 o'clock. We said, sure, what the heck? We're going to do this. I called up a friend of mine who was a new father. And I said, meet me in 15 minutes at Target. I'm going to buy three of whatever you just bought. We got to the hospital, and they decided that the triplet with the colostomy was unable to leave at that time. So while Brian was home with the duplets, I'd go into the hospital, and that was our life, going back and forth on the bridge with twins at home and a newborn baby in the hospital. Were you, did anyone tell you that these kids were likely adoptable? We, yes. Yes. We were told that the birth mother was a schizophrenic who had been 51 50 Six times in five years. What does it mean to be 5150? She had been placed in psychiatric isolation. She had had a child taken away from her before because she was unable to take care of the child. And that we were told, start calling the children by the names you're going to use for them because in all likelihood you will adopt these children. And so when you were going across the bridge, when you were taking care of the duplets at home, you were looking at these kids like... These are my babies. Yes, absolutely. Kevin and Brian and friends and neighbors provide round-the-clock care for the low-weight newborns. It works. The babies fatten up, and the boy even progresses towards having his colostomy bag removed. Then a few months into the new reality, they get a call from a social worker. The birth mother wants to see the kids. And the visit went horribly. There was no social worker in the room, and the birth mother wanted to see the girl awake, and the girl was sleeping, which is what a two-month-old baby does a lot, and she kept shaking her to get her to wake up, at which point the baby kept crying. I said, I don't, I don't think you need to do that. I think she'll wake up in just a few minutes, and she did it again, and I walked over, and I took the baby. I took the baby away from her. 
months pass, and it becomes clear that the birth mother intends to regain custody of the children. Kevin and Brian decide the risk is too great. The babies are too frail to take chances. They deplete their life savings fighting the case in court. They eventually lose that battle, and that day, the court orders they return the triplets that they have spent a year nursing back to health to the birth mother. She said social workers will come to your house at 5 o'clock tonight to pick up the children. Walking to the car, I called our best friend John, and I said, gather everybody up, tell them, while we're traveling across the bridge, you guys have the time to say goodbye to the triplets. And they were all sitting in a circle when we walked into the house with the triplets in the middle of the circle. And we all sat on the couch and waited for the doorbell to ring. You all, you give away your babies. No, they were taken away. Your babies were taken away. When was the last that you heard of the kids that you raised, those triplets that you did raise? Well, the first child we fostered, who is now our adopted son, Zane, our first time taking him to our pediatrician for a medical checkup, we drive into the parking lot, and there is the birth mother with the triplets. In her car, driving in as we're walking to the entrance. That was really the only really, really tough part for me because the boy with the colostomy bag, he kept crying it out and crying it out. Daddy! 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 It was hard. He was screaming for daddy. When you're looking back, do you think that if you were not a gay couple, that you would still have custody of those kids yes I do absolutely our being two gay men yes that affected it but I think that is less systemic there are many many gay and lesbian couples who are adopting out of the foster adopt system very successfully we are one of them actually can we pause for a second Zane what's up If tomorrow you get the call and the triplets, you have two kids right now, you have an active life, the triplets need a place, they need a placement, can they come live with you? Yes, absolutely. The house may be a little bit more crowded, but you know what? One of the things that I've learned about children is numbers of children don't divide your love, they increase it. You want to see Busy? Go to this big happy hurricane that is Kevin and Brian's house. They, snappers, are busy. Much love from us. Now sometimes it takes an event before people start trying to put their family puzzles together. The answers themselves, they might not be that hard to find. I had a child at 18, (laughs) and suddenly I needed to know my medical history. There was only one boy born the day I was born, and he did not have a first name. Actually, the girl that found that information said you should look on adoption support forums. Within hours, I stumbled across Carol Brobeck. Here's a Brobeck who gave a child up for adoption in 1980. (laughs) I was born baby boy Brobeck in 1980. Pretty sure this is her. It was 19. I um, fell in love with a boy in college. We broke up. After we broke up, I found out I was pregnant. I had to tell my parents in the fashion of my family, which is to not speak to each other. I wrote a letter and left it on their pillows. I said I couldn't think of anything to do but adoption, knowing how much I had disappointed them. 
I was actually hoping that they would say, well, this is the start of the conversation. But they said, well, you're absolutely right. My father came down, called me a slut and a tart, and dialed the social services. I think they had an awfully hard time looking me in the eyes for the next three months. If they did, what would they see? They would see the unmaking of me, the unmaking of everybody, I suppose. While she worked at the Folger Shakespeare Library, actually I placed a call and asked for Carol Brobeck. They transferred me right away and I hung up. Being a naive 18-year-old, sort of thinking, well, if I'm going to go introduce myself to somebody who may or may not be ready to see me. I hoped he was healthy. I mean, that was just so important to me. I hope he's tall, not short and fat like the rest of us. Whether they like it or not, I'm going to introduce myself. I just wanted him to have the privilege of being totally who he was, whatever he had become. I made it so it was possible to have the very next day off. And I had gotten to work late that day and in a surly mood, and it was hot and humid, and there was an all-staff meeting at the library. So I shaved, which I'm not want to do. believe I even ironed a shirt and put on, like, you know, my sort of cheap suit that I had at that point. When the meeting was over, 10.45 or so... Politely asked for one Carol Brobeck. And as I was going around the guard's desk, Nathan said to me, Carol, there's someone here to see you. I was still in a pretty bad mood, but I went through this checklist in my mind, and it was, I'm not interviewing any interns. I don't know what this is. The lady at the desk kind of kept looking at me funny. And I thought, first, it must be because of this ridiculous suit that I'm wearing. The more she looked at me, the more I thought, oh, no, she knows exactly who I am, (laughs) which means that Carol's going to know exactly who I am. And then at that moment, as I was processing that, ding! And I turned around, and there was this beautiful young man in a suit and a tie and an earring, and I looked at him, and... And I I did my checklist again, and then I also did this, oh, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. And it, yeah, it was obvious she knew right away exactly. But I was telling myself not to go there. That is one of the fantasies that I've had for years. I kind of walked over towards him, and, and, and I extended my hand. And I also had my cigarettes with me. We went outside. Thank God she was a cigarette smoker, because I was too, and I needed one. And he said... Um, you didn't get my email, did you? And I said, no, I'm I'm sorry. I, I got into work late. I haven't even turned my computer on. And I didn't get to tell her who I was. She just sat down quietly. I sat down next to her. And then he said, you don't know me, do you? And I said, well, the thing is, I, I think I do, but should I know you as I think I know you? And he said, uh-huh. And I said, it's your birthday, December 26, 1980. Were you born December 26, 1980? And I said, yep. And um, I'm, it was amazing. I didn't pass out and kill myself on the marble steps. I was sh- shaking and staring at him and shaking and feeling weak in the knees and stupefied, happily stupefied. And I looked at him and I said, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive. And he pulled me into a hug and he said, yeah, I thought you needed to know that. It's just, you have no idea what it's like to be voluntarily hugged by the child you gave away. And I said, well... If if you don't have to go back to work, Lord knows I'm not working today. I just remember this kind of visceral jubilation. Pardon my French, but I think it was a holy moment. You know, I, I was just like bouncy. And then she said, you stay right here. And she went in and told her boss, something's kind of come up here. <laughs> I'm going to take a little time this afternoon. Um, where do we go? Um, what do we do? Can I, can I feed you? Can I buy you brunch or lunch or whatever? Can I feed you? That's all I could think I wanted to do was let me feed my son. And uh, we went to some diner. So we went down to Jimmy T's on 5th and East Capitol. Sat down and talked, and she just asked question after question. I couldn't eat it all. It's like bite of toast, swig of coffee, bite of toast, swig of coffee. Just staring at me. Where have you grown up? 
you know. And he he told me that day that I had this two-year-old granddaughter. I think that excited her. I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, though, right? I was 18 with a kid. Here I was. And so I ended up walking him down to where he'd parked down by the Washington Monument. and I had gotten what I needed, and she had only scratched the surface on what she needed. And then I had to watch him drive away. But I didn't know I had really any needs until she developed those curiosities instantly in me. I don't know if I'll ever see him again, but I know his name. <laughs> I'll never lose him again. I think we might have had our maximum. I mean, that there was like, this can go on forever, but it can't get better right now. Well, it can only go on forever. reference between Joel and Carol occurred 10 years ago, and the two are still very much in touch. In fact, Carol recently danced at her son's wedding, and the two remain close. I love it. A version of the story produced by Shay Shackelford and Virginia Millington won a documentary award at the 2010 Third Coast Radio Competition. Thanks as well to Miss Stephanie Fu, our own Stephanie Fu, now stay tuned to Snap Judgment, because next up, we've got mystery, international intrigue, laughter, tears, and the hardest decision one woman has ever had to make. All this, you're for the asking, right after the break. Special Snap Judgment episode, one of our own. Stories about the secret sauce that binds people into family. Well, Kim to Blakeort and her husband Jan thought it might be nice if their daughter Jay-Z had a sibling. After a few unsuccessful domestic attempts at adoption, the Blakeorts decided to extend their search internationally. They considered various places, Ethiopia, Thailand, but finally they decided to work with the country Kim had traveled to as a missionary, Ukraine. After having long been closed to foreign adoption, Ukraine had just opened its doors a crack to the idea. They meet several children and are despondent that they won't be able to provide the type of care that these kids deserve. And then right before their trip back to the States, they hear about one more little boy, Sasha. The child, Sasha, well, he was three years old, and he had never been outside the institutional walls. When you saw this boy for the first time, mm -hmm. what did he look like to you? He looked like he could have been our natural son. And I said, this is the child. This is the one we came for. And you knew that in the first meeting? I knew that in the first meeting. How did your husband feel? He felt exactly the same way. Sounds magical. It was. It was a magical time for us. And that time... Our daughter, J.C., came with us, and it was actually J.C. and Sasha who connected the best right off the bat, you know, immediately. What is the next step? We decided to keep visiting him, and every day we'd be there. For how long? About a week. After a week, the DeBlakeorts tell their facilitator, we've decided to start the adoption process. But he says, before you can go to court, you've got to understand, Sasha has a brother and a sister. And the DeBlakeorts have to get both siblings' permission. They first go to meet the sister. She's just about to graduate high school. 
and she was very kind and took the time out to meet with us but the very first words out of her mouth were I don't want to be adopted and that I give my blessing for you to adopt one or both my brothers anytime you want. Did she know her half-brother? They had never been introduced. Kim tries to track down Sasha's brother but it turns out he's in America visiting a family that wants to adopt him. And so we told our facilitator go ahead the brother and the sister One's already going to be adopted, and one's old enough to not want to be adopted, so go forward. And rather than having an attorney, our facilitator acts that way because he's trained in adoptions. But there's a prosecutor also. So there was a young prosecutor, and I'm just going to call him Alexander, and he seems to be upset. What turns out to be his objection? His objection is that we were separating siblings of a family. I finally had the facilitator ask, well, what's your definition of a family? These children have never met, and you know he's never going to be adopted here in Ukraine. And so at the end of the trial, the judge comes back in and he says, look, prosecutor, I understand your objection, but I don't agree with it, and therefore I am granting this adoption. Well, the prosecutor was furious. He slammed things around and he left the room, but we were celebrating. The prosecutor is defeated, but it turns out the celebration is premature. Wednesday, August 11th, I get a phone call, and they said, Kim, I, I really don't know how else to tell you this, so I'm just coming out and telling you this. Uh, the prosecutor has decided to appeal your adoption, and Kim, I don't think you're going to be able to adopt this boy. This is going to take at least months, if not years, of legal wrangling. Kim, I just think you need to go home. So I'm I'm more or less having to sit down on this side street of Ismail, just sobbing, just breaking down, wondering how I'm going to tell this little boy. Because this is a little boy now that when I walk beyond that wall, is yelling, Mama, Mama, and running to me with his arms wide open. That took months. And I remember picking myself up, and brushing off as best I could before I walked into my hotel room. But I got up the next morning determined that this boy was my son. And I thought I was strong until I called my husband. He was right there with me. That is our son. Let's pray about this. This is not the end. I called our facilitator the next day and I said, look, what's the next step? And while I'm waiting, I made a friend in the American Embassy, and they told me, I'm going to put you in touch with somebody. He's an American. He has shared citizenship. And he would just call me once a day, once every other day, letting me know what he was finding out behind the scenes on our case. This mysterious voice on the phone. The mysterious voice, yes. And on August 25th, I believe it was a Friday, 4.30 in the afternoon, and he calls me. And he said, Kim, you need to get ready. Um, you're going to go pick up your son next week. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, Kim, the prosecutor didn't get his paperwork in on time. You need to go to your judge and demand a copy of your ruling. And you need to get your son out of here. You know, I was just kind of ecstatic. I was floating high at this point. So Monday, I go in, and I, I do as I was instructed. I demand my ruling. And he did as he promised. He gave me the ruling. And I went to the uh, orphan house. You know, I thought that we had kind of attached, we had made this bond. But when that little boy walked beyond those walls, he was terrified. He had never been out of the walls before? No, let alone been inside a vehicle. He'd never been in a car? No. That little boy went spread eagle over the opening of that back door of that cab. And he started screaming, and his little hand was reaching back for the orphanage. That's all he knew. That's all he knew. Holding Sasha in her lap, Kim heads down to the Ukrainian birth certificate office to get Sasha's official documents so that he's free to leave the country. They approach the counter, and the clerk says, Hey, I've received a phone call from this prosecutor down in Ismail, and he's telling me not to give you this birth certificate. She refuses to give us the birth certificate, and we're stuck. But here's where the snap judgment comes in. The very next day, Thursday night... I'm called by my facilitator, and he's telling me the story of how the attorney for the orphan house was woken up in the middle of the night by the police and the prosecutor, and tells him 
look, he's out to get you because you've damaged his reputation. And um, she needs to bring the boy back. And so he calls me and he says, Kim, I need to know, are you going to stay and see this through? Are you going to be the mom of this boy? And he said, I need to know this right now. Because if you're not, I need to pick that boy up tonight and return him to the orphanage first thing in the morning. What is it going to be, Kim? Are you staying or are you leaving? And that's when I told him, I'm this boy's mother. I'm here for as long as it takes. And he said, I really didn't think that would be your answer. He said, out of all the people I've met from other countries, they don't seem to want to be inconvenienced by these children. They just want to adopt them quickly and take them home. And he said, I'm surprised, but I'm glad. And he hung up. Your facilitator is in your corner at this point. He is. He's even in our corner in December when our American Adoption Agency decides to discontinue representing us, returns almost all our money, and dismisses him, actually forbids him from contacting me anymore. Why do they do that? They're afraid. They don't want to get kicked out of the country. They're just afraid of the entire situation. And this whole time, though, I'm being told, not only by the voice on the phone, but by other people in the area, how careful I need to be. Because it's all in who you know. And people in the legal business were especially known in Ukraine to be connected to the mafia. And so I was instructed to stay off the grid. You were undercover. I was basically trying to get off the grid. Kim and Sasha go into hiding. They're joined by Kim's daughter, Jay-Z, and they move from location to location. They change their clothes to blend into Ukrainian society. They only speak Russian in public, and they try to stay one step ahead of the prosecutor's reach. Finally, Kim assembles her own legal team, financed by donations from a growing network of Christian supporters. And back and forth and back and forth, the lawyers duke it out. All for this one little boy. And after months and trials and objections and appeals, Kim finally gets her day in court. And the prosecutor is a no-show. And of course it went very smoothly. Everything was in our favor. We left the room, we came back, and we won. Kim is ecstatic, but also fearful. The prosecutor has proven again and again he'll do anything to keep him in the country. They get Sasha's new birth certificate with his new name, Jake. The American embassy quickly issues a passport and they rush to the airport, checking the rearview mirror the whole way. They drop me off at the front of the Kiev, uh, it's called Borispol Airport. It is just a human circus inside this airport. And that is the first time I knew when I looked up that there was this volcano in Iceland. Nothing was flying. So I call my friend back in Odessa and I say, look, what do I do? And he said, well, you get on one of those midnight trains from Kiev back to Odessa. And I said, you're kidding me. I said, he has power. The prosecutor is a prosecutor of the Odessa Oblast. I mean, we're going right back into, into his neighborhood. And he said, Kim, I will have somebody meet you at the train station, and we are going to get you across the border. First thing in the morning, we pull in, and he has hired some kind of kickboxing champion in Ukraine. Over six foot tall, blonde crew cut, kind-looking eyes. Champion. Yeah, I mean, this guy is the real deal. He is a solid wall of muscle. Are you getting hopeful at all? Is this really, is this going to be the end? Well, before I get into the car with him, I ask him what, you know, what his relationship is with Kurt. And he says, well, we are brothers in Christ. And he gives me his testimony. And I, and, and so you, I had been, you found your people. I found my people. I felt assured and, that I was safe and that this man was going to take care of me. And his name was Sasha, just like my son's. And I said, yep, that's all the proof I need. We piled in the car and we are going fast. He's taking back roads, dirt roads filled with potholes. And on the way from Odessa down to Ismail, there's a little part of Moldova that sticks into Ukraine. So we get to this border checkpoint and they're talking about something before he addresses me. And he opens up my door and he says, Kim, you need to get out. There's a problem with your passport. I said, my, gotta be I said, my passport? I mean, we had always thought that the prosecutor would try to stop us on Jake's. 
we never thought he'd try anything else. And so at that point, they're starting to speak in rapid Russian. And Sasha's asking him a question, and the commander's just like biting his head off. And I kind of see Sasha throw his shoulders back a little bit. And I'm wondering to myself if he's going to punch this guy. And all of a sudden, in just a really calm, even voice, he says something to him. That while he would allow them to arrest me on paper, he was not going to allow them to take me into custody. That he was going to go out to the car and get his Ukrainian passport, which Ukrainians never give up. He was basically putting his identity on the line for me because something wasn't right. And the commander agreed to it. The commander leaves, and now what happens? They fill out three different sets of paperwork. They have me and Sasha sign them, and we're free to go. And that's when I could relax. From Moldova, they fly to Istanbul. From Istanbul to Chicago. In Chicago, they catch that last flight to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And there, they're greeted by Kim's husband, Jan, a crowd of supporters, family, and news crews. And they want a quote from the happy family. Jan and I just prepared a little statement that was just this. It was compassion that opened our hearts to adoption. And it was love that made us stay but it was God who brought us home. Many thanks to the DeBlaycourt family for opening up their hearts and their home to us. I'm so proud because this story comes from my own homeland of Western Michigan. And stay tuned because we've got more mamas and daddies and families coming right up. Snap Judgment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Now, we have come a long, long way, Snappers, a long way from 1969 when the concept of a mixed-race couple was so controversial and ruled Vermont that one woman had to have her baby in secret and then immediately put her up for adoption. It was a small adoption agency in Vermont. I might have been the first non-white child they ever had. Um, And my parents were young and white. They um, came multiple times to the agency to try and get to take me. And the agency kept essentially discouraging them and telling them, you know, you don't want this. And who in your position would want this? I was actually categorized, grouped, I don't know how you would have said it, especially in 1969, with undesirable children. It would have been babies with disabilities or babies that in some way aren't what you would expect a young couple to take on in their life at that time. And the reason why I was in that group was because I'm not white and they didn't know what the hell I was. But at some point, the agency said, basically, okay, give us 50 bucks and you can take her home. (laughs) So I grew up in a town called Cornwall, which is a very fitting description of the town. On a dirt road, very country childhood, in extremely rural Vermont. I went without shoes. I climbed everything. Also, though, in terms of race stuff, um, a lot of racist stuff. I just remember the sentiment always of kind of like, you know, this little nigger child in our midst. (laughs) There were, to my recollection, no other kids of color in Cornwall. 
I think that my mother did an amazing job of raising me to be um, a, a conscious human being and a real critical thinker, but I don't think that she prepared me in terms of how to be a person of color in this world, no. I knew very little about my birth parents. When I was adopted, the agency offered to give my adoptive parents my biological parents' names. My adoptive parents refused, and they said if she wants it later, she can access it later, um, but we're gonna, not going to take it. I know that she was white. I know that he was not white. I do not know what he was. He's the wild card. Uh, my sense has always been that he was African-American. There's, there's not really anything about it other than that he was dark-skinned, but of course it was 1969, so, I mean, he could have been a light-skinned Colombian. Who knows? <laughs> years later, when I was... 23 years old, I thought maybe this is a time to get my biological parents' names or some information. And at that time, I was told that all of the records had been lost. There had been a fire some years before and that there was nothing. That there was no, and not Emily information, but no trail really whatsoever. So that meant essentially almost any lead to, to finding my biological parents was lost. Out of my whole life, one of the questions certainly I've most been asked is, what are you? What are you? What are you? When you just give the answer that you don't know, people don't find it acceptable. Like, it's not an acceptable answer. I mean, when someone says it to me, I don't find it offensive. I find it an opportunity to perhaps make them think about why they think it matters so much. I do not know what race I am. Funny because even though she does not know what her race is, or maybe because of that fact, Jasmine now works as an anti-racism trainer. That story was produced by her own Anna Sussman. Now, in 1985, as a gruesome civil war raged in El Salvador, thousands of American families traveled to the tiny country to adopt babies and fly them out of the wreckage to the safety of American homes. Angela Fillingham was one of those children. My parents were very open about it, and, and the information that they had at the time was that my birth mother was a seamstress, which is a technical way of saying she worked in a sweatshop, and that she was afraid of having a child in the middle of a war in El Salvador. I did wonder a lot about my family. My mom actually kept a poem from when I was in fourth grade that I wrote about wanting to answer the question of, like, who do you look like more, your mother or your father? And I managed to kind of push it to the background until I was in high school. I think there's this idea of going back home and so feeling what that would be like. When I decided to go back to El Salvador, I was 20. And I had never really traveled internationally. So it was kind of terrifying to leave my parents. The flight from L.A. took off at 1 in the morning, and we landed in El Salvador right as the sun was coming up. And I just remember looking down and seeing all of these bluish-green streetlights. And I remember stepping off the plane thinking, crap, what did I get myself into? My intention in going was solely to see where I'm from. And I ended up coming into contact with this organization called Probusqueda, which is an organization that was formed by families whose children disappeared during the war that actually uses DNA to um, match possible disappeared children with surviving biological family members. During the war, there have been cases where the army literally just was marching by and took a child out of a hammock. These children were then brought to orphanages and then put up for an adoption. Looking back at it, my biggest fear was probably finding nothing. What if my family's dead or what if they can't find anything? Then that's almost worse than not knowing. I met with one of the representatives of Probusqueda. She didn't know that I spoke as much Spanish as I did. She just went on and on and said, 
her family is probably dead. That's what they do. They probably killed her entire family, and then she was put up for adoption. She was stolen. She was stolen. And I just remember hearing, she was stolen, she was stolen, she was stolen. And so the narrative of my adoption in my head went from being like this act of saving your child to one of a crime. I decided to get the DNA test. They open this sterile cotton swab and they rub it in your mouth. Then they have the Physicians for Human Rights come in and they do the matches. I think at that point I was like, well, they have my case. We'll see what happens. I, and I think I remained optimistically pessimistic. Like out of nowhere, after two months of no communication with them, I hadn't even been thinking about it. I got an email saying that they found my birth mother and I have a half-brother and they had a picture of them. And so I just remember opening that and just being like, okay, well, I finally know who I look like. This is kind of trippy. When I first met her, all she said to me for like 10 minutes was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And what she told me then was just that in the city that she moved to, the FMLN was actually going in the streets and taking children. Um, So she was really afraid of that. And then this lawyer approached her, saw she was pregnant, and said, I can bring your child to a safer place until the war is over. And from her perspective, I think it was the most logical thing you can do. But that she thought that I was going to come back when the war was over. She didn't know that, that it was an adoption, essentially. I think when she told me that she didn't understand what she was doing, it was traumatic on multiple levels. On the one hand, it was traumatic because... I'd have to share this with my parents, and and, I mean, they had no idea. There was no way they could know. There's like an intense amount of guilt that would be associated with like, what did I do? And I think from her perspective, it just kind of was like doing what she did and then being duped. And there was no redress. There's no way to do anything. I remember telling her she didn't have anything to have to apologize about. What was really hard about kind of meeting her again was like, what would be her expectations and what would be mine? I actually talked with another adoptee about this, how our birth mothers felt so attached, and we were kind of freaked out by that. And the way meeting your, like, biological family solidifies what your family means to you, that your adoptive family, you don't need the adoptive in front of it because it is your family. There's been so many times in my life where I, people have said, well, it's so, your parents are so amazing that they love a child that isn't biologically theirs. And I'm just sitting there like, really? Because to me, it makes them a human being, like that you're capable of seeing someone and saying, I have love and you need love and I will give you unconditional love and support. It's just part of being a human being. Angela plans to one day take her American family to El Salvador to meet her biological family. But for now, she's busy writing her Ph.D. dissertation on the need for human rights protocols in international adoptions. Fisaha is 16 years old. He plays soccer and goes to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. And just listening to him, you wouldn't guess that five years ago, he was living as a shepherd in Ethiopia. I used to be a shepherd. I used to raise cows and all sort of animals. He had an idyllic childhood, raising crops and playing all day outside. But then Fisaha's father died. And Fisaha's mother told him that a dispute between the neighboring shepherds meant his home was no longer safe. She sent him to live in the capital, Addis Ababa, with his grandmother, Sahai. My sister took me. We had to walk for hours to get there and then take the bus to the capital. Every day, my grandmother and sister had to work, and then she found an orphanage, so I went there. They told me that I was going to get adopted, but I don't really know what adoption was. I'm Melissa Faye Green. My husband, Don Samuel, and I have been married for almost 32 years. And in that time, we have created a family of nine children, four by birth and five by adoption. The youngest five came from Bulgaria and from Ethiopia. And I knew that most people entering the adoption world are looking for baby girls. So I told the orphanage director if there was an older boy who had gotten overlooked, we would be open. And so she told us about a boy named 
Fisaha Mengisti, and he was nine and seemed like a very nice boy, she said. Uh, the paperwork said that both parents were deceased and that he had been living with his grandmother, who was too poor to keep him. And so we said yes. I flew over to Ethiopia. I realized it was the third time in my life I was about to meet a child who was going to call me mama. It's really terrifying. I made it into the orphanage, and the gate closed behind us, and everyone was yelling, Saha, Saha, the, the nickname for Fisaha, Saha. And he was hiding. My mom saw me in a corner, so she came to me and asked me if I was Fisaha. We left in the taxi, and we're driving along in kind of packed, hot, dusty, treeless, industrial road. And Fisaha suddenly, he starts shouting, shouting. So what's going on? Salamna, the taxi driver, says he sees his grandmother's street. And suddenly Fisaha's yelling again, yelling again, this is it, this is grandmother's house. Salamna says, what's your grandmother's name? Sahai. Salamna goes and knocks on the door of this compound. A woman answers the door, and they talk, and then Salamna turns away, shaking his head. Where's Sahai? They don't know. They don't know. She left a long time ago. I look at Fisaha, and his eyes are just both red, and I realize this is the archetypal orphan's nightmare. His grandmother took him to the orphanage, and now she's moved, and the family's gone. So I said through Salamna, okay, let's do this. Let's leave information for her. The next day, Salamna took us to the Mercato, and his phone rings, and he's yelling on his cell phone, and he says, they have found her. They have found Sahai. So off we go, off we go, back in the car, driving back out, and we've barely parked when just a tornado of a little person, just a typhoon, is just tap dancing down the road, screaming, and Fasad gets out of the car, and she is all over him, all over him. She's like a hawk picking up a mouse. She's just nibbling him and kissing him and hugging him. She's very, <laughs> she's a very loving person. She said, yes, you should go. And she was pretty sad that when I left. When I first saw Atlanta, I was very surprised. I thought it was going to be the same as in Ethiopia, except a little better. Early on, he had told us his story. He was very clear. He said his mom was alive. And I said, sweetheart, she's not. He said, yes, she is. I had the paperwork his grandmother had told me. I said, I know she loved you, and I know you loved her, but but she died. He said, no, she didn't. And he said, they had to send me away to save my life. I'm like, really? Tell us about that. And he, and he said, they thought I was going to be killed. And we would say, why did this man want to kill you? My older brother had a cattle. Another guy was interrupting his crop. And they got into a fight, and my brother accidentally killed them. So the other family had a right to kill one of the sons. And we're like, really? I told them all, so they didn't believe me. Um, we had a spring break. My mom and dad decided that we should visit Ethiopia. My name is Lee Samuel. I'm the third oldest in our family, the youngest biological boy. The day we went to see Sahai, I knew it would be one of the high points of our trip. She came and had her typical greeting of sobbing, prostrating herself on the floor, and covering herself with dirt. And then when she saw Sisaha, it was like a volcanic eruption. And she was crying and all that. So we went back a few days later, uh, Tifaha and myself, and instantly as we walked in, Tifaha saw his mother and turned to me and said, Lee, that's, that's my mom. And I said, Tifaha, we've been over this. Your mom died several years ago. He said, Lee, like, it's my mom. I'm not, I'm not kidding. That's my mom. The surprise was my mother because she lived so far. So I was very excited, happy that she came. Instantly, I thought, I gotta call mom. I say, Mom, Tifaha's mom is here. You need to get here right away. She got really soft and serious on the phone and almost whispered to me, No, sweetie, that, that can't be because she died. And he said, Well, 
she's here. I was in total shock. I started shaking so much, I thought I was going to drop the phone. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Now this is a big deal. It's a big deal in the adoption world. As I was sitting next to him, I could feel him shaking. On the surface, everything's calm, but under the surface, his heart was just pounding. They had identical eyes. He was also very calm. Hugged him and just kind of sat back as Sahai was parading around screaming and throwing things. We went to a restaurant. And we pull up, and a little tiny woman came hurrying toward us, very dark skin, head tightly wrapped. So we kissed and kissed and kissed the traditional cheek to cheek over and over, and then suddenly it just turned into this big, a big family luncheon. Having my two mothers of the same praise was kind of comfortable for me. They both were happy. This is his birth mother. I said, why did Fisah leave the village? And I thought, now we'll learn. He's had this fantasy. So one of the adult half-brothers said, there is a man in our village who grazes his animals on our land. So I went out one day to stop him, and we got into an argument, and we began to fight, and we fight with big sticks. And it has happened by accident that I have killed this man. This gives his family the right to take the life of a male in our family. After Fisaha, we are all adults and they won't come after us. We can defend ourselves, but how can we protect a small boy? We don't want him to be killed. And <laughs> Fisaha, Fisaha's like, yeah, I know. All of us took pictures, ate together, and then said bye to each other. It was pretty sad that I had to leave him again. I said to Fisaha, how are you feeling about seeing everyone? And he said, I feel like I want to see them again. And I said, well, that is great. That will absolutely happen. I look forward to making many, many, many trips to Ethiopia. That story was produced by Molly Samuel, Fisaha's sister, and our own Stephanie Fu. Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, Stephanie Fu, Anna Sussman, Rita Daniels, Joe Goling, and Will Urbina. Now, if you see someone scrubbing floors when they're supposed to be at the Royal Ball, that's probably the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Please wave your wand and let them know to be back by midnight. We here at The Snap are inspired by Youth Speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. PRX, putting the public in public media, prx.org. And even though this is not the news, in fact, you could write a bestseller about your horrible childhood, go on Oprah, have her cuss you out for your lies, then go back on Oprah with a book about how she cussed you out. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. producer of this very podcast listening, judging and condemning all she hears out of my mouth right now is Snap Judgment's own podcast producer Rita Daniels